I didn't just pick a random cup of water from the floor. I was, I was promised that that was for me, so, by somebody who I trust at the moment. If I fall off and die, then you know I'd made a mistake to trust him. I, I, a friend of mine li um, lives in London, and um, it's, a, it's a, a friend of a friend, actually, a friend of my brother's, who um, uh, was house-sitting for somebody with a dog in London. They were going, a person was going away and said, could you, could you stay in my, my apartment and look after the dog while I'm away? And the dog died. And so she, she was thinking, okay, uh, what do you do? And the, the person was away for, for a week or two more after the, the death of the dog. So she, she, one of her responsibilities is to deal with the, the body. She can't just have it in the, in, the, in the apartment for a couple of weeks. So she's, she's got to get it to the vet where it's disposed of. And uh, doing that in London is not simple because she, she had no per private transport and you just got to get around on public transport. So she gets um, her, the dog into a suitcase and takes it on the underground train. So like the metro here, um, the underground train from one part of London to the other. And uh, while she's doing this, somebody sees that she's struggling with this case and, and seems to want to help and says, can I help you carry your case up the stairs? And, uh, and she looks at him and thinks, okay, I'm gonna have to, if I'm, I'll just have to agree to this, okay, thank you. He starts carrying it and says, this is really heavy, what's in it? So then she's got a decision to make. Uh, do I tell the truth? Um, and she decides, I, I, I can't tell the truth, it's just too weird. So she says, uh, this is my boyfriend's DJ equipment. Uh, that's why it's so heavy. It's all his turntables and, and headphones and things like that. And, uh, and so she thinks he's got away with it, and this, this, this polite, friendly stranger is sort of taking it up. Oh, this is very, very, yeah, okay. It's very heavy, but I'll help you. At the top of the staircase, she realizes that he's not a friendly stranger, but a thief. <laughs> and he runs off with the suitcase, and she never sees him again. <laughs> that's the end of the story. And it has nothing to do with my sermon at all. And the sad thing is that many of you, that's the main thing you'll remember from what I have to say today. <laughs> but it's completely true. Uh, that's exactly what happened. So I, I just, I'm with you, I'm just picturing that thief, thinking that he's laid hands on, on I don't know, two or three hundred pounds worth of really good DJ gear, opening the zip, excited, how much is he gonna make, what can he put on eBay? You can't put a dead Labrador on eBay, he's decided. So, so uh, yeah, it's a lovely story. It's got a nice ending. Okay, we're in the New Testament book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bible with you, perhaps you could turn there. It's very near the end of the Bible, the book of Hebrews. And we're going to be at the end of it in chapter 13. So I'll read to you a couple of verses from chapter 13 in a moment. And then we'll pray and then we'll get into it. But uh, while you're turning to Hebrews or scrolling to it, whatever you're, you're using... Just to say thank you for having me and how good it is to be back. I really so enjoy being here in Amsterdam and, here, and being here in Liberty because it's a, a, a truly wonderful city but a truly wonderful church. And uh, I'm, I'm delighted to see friends, but I'm also delighted to see strangers in the set for, for me. Uh, you're not strange, but you're new, and that's good. And it's just lovely to see the, the church uh, growing and people coming and finding uh, the love of Jesus here, finding friends, finding community, and uh, it's just inspiring. So thank you for all you're doing. Thank you. Be encouraged 
what you're a part of is, is an exciting adventure in this, in this city. Amsterdam needs communities that are full of Jesus. This, this cities like Amsterdam and, and my city, Brighton and, and London and Berlin and cities like where we're planting churches, we're doing it because we know that these are cities full of people, full of potential and full of problems and what they need to be is full of Jesus uh, because people need Jesus, cities need Jesus, the nations of the world need Jesus and when you plant churches in cities like Amsterdam, you have a chance of changing the world a little bit because what happens in Amsterdam spreads out it kind of has its influence. And so what you're doing here is, is so wonderful. What you're a part of has tremendous long-term impact in our lifetimes and in the age to come. So be, be encouraged and give your whole heart to building the local church. It's, it's the center of God's attention. It's the apple of his eye. It's what he is most concerned about. Jesus loves the church and died for her. And so you never make a mistake when you, when you prioritize the church and you say, I'm going to help build the church. That is not a mistake. <laughs> In a thousand years' time, the church will be the only thing left over because it's going to last forever. So you keep building it. You're not wasting your time. You're giving yourself to what most counts in this world. Okay, so we're in Hebrews chapter 30, and I want to talk to you today about one of the implications of growth. When churches grow... Uh, that's inspiring and exciting, it's also a problem. It's also a challenge. It also necessitates uh, the, the emergence of leaders. It causes a need for leaders. Now this church was, was started when Matt and Joe moved over here uh, with a group of friends just a few years ago. And for a long time, uh, if you talk about who is the leader of this church, well, hopefully the leader is, is Jesus. But in terms of who is in the room making decisions, uh, it will tend to come back to Matt Simmons. Uh, and he's, he's led this ever so well, but long term, more and more what will be needed is team and people coming through to carry leadership responsibility alongside. And this is a, a, a biblical principle. We see it in the Bible. We see it in common sense, really. Organizations that grow need capacity leadership teams. They need people working together to lead it well. And so when in the New Testament leaders are referred to, they're often referred to in plural, leaders, not leader. And so the next season in Liberty will involve leaders being identified and uh, sort of publicly uh, put in position. There will be a season in the coming months that will we'll say to, to Liberty, here are some leaders. We want you to respond to these people as leaders. We want you to see them as, as leaders in the church. It isn't just Matt. There's actually a, a, a bit more of a, a plural dynamic going on. And so what I want to talk to you about has to do with that. I want to talk to you about how we respond to leaders, which is a, a good subject, but a, an awkward and difficult subject for reasons that we'll get into. So I want us to try and think, think Bible about this, think biblically about this, uh, because naturally we don't always think Bible. <laughs> you may have noticed uh, we need help with that. So let's look at Hebrews uh, 13, and I'll read from 7 to 10, and then I'll skip a bit and read 17 to 20. It says this in verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is... Good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, 
not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. I'm just going to skip over to verse 17 to 20. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Let's just quickly pray. Father, we do thank you for your kindness to us, uh, shown fully in, in the gift of Jesus. Lord, we don't deserve anything that we have from you, but you've given us, you've been over the top in what you've given us. You've given us more than we could possibly imagine. You've given us your very best. You gave us your son. And we, we thank you that gives us confidence to come and ask for your blessing and your help. And so we do. We ask you right now, in the name of Jesus, to speak to us and guide us and lead us and shape and train and sort of sculpt us into the, into the, the perfect work of art that you would have in this city. We pray, Lord, that we would be the kind of church you want to be. So help us for that purpose. In Jesus' name we pray, by your grace. Amen. Amen. So the, 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 the book of Hebrews is famously difficult because so much of it is a little bit hard for us to understand. But this part of Hebrews is difficult because it's so easy to understand because what it's saying is quite plain. It's, it's talking about leadership, which we, we are called to, uh, as it says in verse 17, submit to. And that's, that's a, a very uncomfortable way to talk in 21st century Amsterdam, I'm sure you'll agree. Submitting to leaders. What, 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 do you, what kind of city do you think this is? This is free Amsterdam. This is autonomous Amsterdam. This is liberated Amsterdam. This is where everybody is their own leader. We don't do leadership. Or maybe we do leadership because we kind of have to. So we agree that leaders are one of those painful necessities. Anything that's big and needs organizing, I suppose we have to put up with leaders in the same way that we, we have to put up with things in an imperfect world like dentists, <laughs> or dentist drills. Maybe dentists is a bit harsh, but you know, we, no one would, if in a perfect world, we wouldn't say, let there be light, let there be giraffes and jam and, 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 and sunlight and, and fountains and dentist drills. You wouldn't choose it, but we need it. We, we react and we realize we have to have this annoying thing. And we can see leaders in the same category. You've got to have them. You don't really want them. You wouldn't choose them, but I suppose it's better than anarchy. Let's organize things. Let's have somebody setting up the, the lines and the rules. That's, that's the way we tend to see it. And for probably very good reasons. Because we've only got to read about three paragraphs of history to notice that leaders <laughs> have done pretty badly quite often. And there is such a thing as wicked leadership, uh, tyrants and abuse and all the rest. 
So we have bad experience, bad vibes about the whole thing. But here in the Bible, we, we see a vision of leadership which is not negative. In fact, it's not even neutral. In fact, in the Bible, leadership can be a gift from God. A gift, genuinely a gift, not a curse, but a gift from God. In fact, Jesus, when he came talking, he came preaching about the kingdom of God. So much of what the Bible is about is the kingdom of God. God's plan for, for, for the future of, of, of the world is a kingdom. <laughs> and and you, know, you come from a, a country, I come from a country where we have royalty, but in, in, in the UK and perhaps even more in Holland, it, it's kind of, it, it plays a, a, a more and more marginal kind of role because wow, we, we're not so sure we're comfortable with the idea of a king or a, a queen having power, but God's plan is that there is going to be a king and a good king. And everyone's going to be happy about that king. People are going to trust him and love him and be grateful for his rule, his reign, his authority will be received and embraced. And so in the Bible, the idea of leadership, the idea of leaders, the idea of uh, kings even, kings and queens, is, is essentially put forward as a positive thing, a good thing. The fact that it tastes bad to us is not God's fault because we've messed around with it and distorted it. Leadership in the Bible is intended as a good thing. And that's a difficult, perhaps, idea for us to grasp, but I think it's important. I think it's important for us to, to, to think, if I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to take Jesus seriously, I'm going to have to grasp his idea of the gift of leaders. It, it even says that, that when Jesus ascended after being raised from the dead, which we'll celebrate next Sunday especially, he was ascended to the Father's right hand where he is forever now. And then it says in Ephesians chapter four, from his position of exaltation, from his place of authority, what's he done? He has given gifts, gifts to his people. And the gifts that it describes in Ephesians four is the gift of leaders. He ascended and gave gifts of men. You think, why would men be gifts? Why would people be a gift? But that's exactly how it's described. Leaders from God are a gift from the heart of God. God loves his people so much that he gives leaders. Is that a strange sort of switch in the head we have to flick? It's like, really? Is that a gift from you? People who have authority and responsibility? Is that really a gift to me? Yeah. Jesus says, yes, from my heart. I love you so much. I want you to have leaders. So I'm saying something that's a little bit of a culture shock for 21st century Western urbanites like me and you who don't find it naturally easy to think biblically about this. Go back in the Old Testament. don't have to turn there, but if you want to, it's in Isaiah chapter 32. Just the first couple of verses. This is a classic case in point describing... The coming of Jesus, this is written hundreds of years by Isaiah before Jesus was even born. He says this, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. So God's blessing is coming. How is God going to bless his people? With a king, and with princes, with sort of 
if you like, sub-kings, people who rule on his behalf. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. That's a list of four very positive descriptions. Wonderful shade and shelter and strength. All these things given to me from God through what? Through the gift of leadership. And, and so we see it as positive, but then we have to face the reality that it, it often feels negative to have a leader over us. Maybe your boss at work is a difficult boss. Maybe you feel the, the awkwardness, the, the frustration of submitting to a leader in your department, in, on your floor, in your, in your office, who you just think, oh, I just wish this, I could work here if it wasn't for the boss. It would be okay. Maybe it's somebody even in your family. Maybe you're at home with parents who you find it hard to submit to and respond to. Maybe you're, you're young and you're at home and that's the category you're in. I don't know what, what your experience of this is, but it's, it's, it's difficult to submit because the reality is it interferes with our preference sometimes. It interferes with our will, with what we see as our freedom. And that can certainly happen in the local church. Because if a leader is actually leading, it will mean things change. They will be what, what the, 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 the book of Isaiah describes, a rock. A rock is a wonderful thing in the desert if you want shade from the, the pelting sun. But a rock is also something you don't want to run into head first. When I was a kid and I used to fall over on a rock, I, I never got up thinking it was a pleasant experience. It's a rock. It's tough. It sometimes leaves a scar. It's like, oh, that's, 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 a, that's, that's not yielding. That's not soft and gentle. That's... That's decisive, a rock. And true leaders will sometimes have to be like that. True leaders will have to sometimes say, no, this is what we are doing. True leaders will sometimes take a direct approach. True leaders will sometimes tell us what to do. True leaders will sometimes make changes that affect us. And we feel like, wow, who, who put that rock there? This was a nice place to walk until I bumped into that. And true leaders need to be like that. We have a concept of leadership sometimes in churches, which is not really leadership. It's more like kind of chairing. It's kind of just sort of trying to not, not interfere too much at all. It's a bit like that, that story of the person that's going for a walk and got this dog on a lead. And someone says, well, what are you doing with that dog? I'm, I'm taking this dog for a walk. And the person says, where, where are you taking it? Anywhere where it wants to go. <laughs> and sometimes leaders behave like that. It's like wherever, wherever this church wants to go is where we go. <laughs> and that's not what the Bible's describing. It is describing something with a slightly more definite sense of purpose. You know, there's, there's, there's a place we need to go. I think I have seen something that's better for us. A leader will do, a true leader will see where the future is see what is the right thing, the right path ahead, and very often, if not most of the time, see it before the rest of the community see it. That's part of what makes them a leader. They are the agent of change. They represent change. They're the one that comes in and says, we are here, we need to be there, so let's break up camp and move. Now, eventually, pretty much everyone will agree. Because they'll see, oh yeah, it is better over here actually. 
But in the process of getting from here to there, that leader is going to get a very big inbox. Because in the process of change, people don't like it so much. It's not comfortable or convenient. And sometimes we forget why we're doing it. And we haven't seen what the leader's seen. And so what we see is a leader who seems like an interference, like a busybody. It doesn't really agree with what I prefer, but they seem to be, their decisions seem to count more than mine. And so we somewhat resent it, and, and maybe we allow for it, but out of a sort of reluctance. But like I say, this, this book is appealing to us to have a, a more positive view, even in the context of some disharmony. So he says a couple of things which we'll look at before we finish. Two, two instructions. The first was in verse 7. The second is in verse 17. The first in verse 7 is remember. Remember your leaders. Remember your leaders. Now, let me just say, importantly, this writer is writing an important letter. We haven't got time to dig into Hebrews today, but I want you to understand the context. He is fighting for their spiritual lives. He is not saying, um, the letter's getting to the, the last chapter. I've said quite a lot, but I'm sure I could think of a few more things to throw in. It's chapter 13. Um, what else? There's prayer, there's spiritual gifts, there's worship, there's sacrifice, all these things I've talked about. Leadership. Yeah, let's throw in a few verses about leadership to round the letter out, make it a more comprehensive kind of encyclopedic letter so that it touches all the issues in the Christian life so that we feel like we've been really well served by this rather long letter. No, the writer to the Hebrews is absolutely red-hot passionate about the souls of the people he's writing to. He cares about their future passionately, really concerned for them. There's not a wasted word. He would not waste a sentence just to say something bland about leadership. He's actually saying, this affects the future of your lives. This affects the future of your church. This affects the future of where you do church. This affects the future of eternity for some of you. Because it's part of how you respond to God. So he's saying, please, guys, think about the way you respond to leaders. That's what he's saying. And like I say, the first part is, remember your leaders. We'll get to verse 17 in a minute where he says, obey your leaders, which may be the harder part. But first of all, remember. Remember your leaders. And let's just look again at how he says, remember your leaders, verse 7, who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith, imitate their faith. He's, he's saying, look, there's a way to live that you are right to conform to. I want you to, I want you to see the people that God has put in your life, the people that God has put in your life, the ones that have brought God to you, the people in your life who've most brought you to Jesus. And I want you to remember why they've been such a blessing. I want you to think, what is it about their life, their words, their example, their trajectory, their, their story that's so important? What is it about their life that I need to copy? And even the word imitate is a strong word, isn't it? Especially 
for us. The 21st century Amsterdamers, we think in terms of non-conformity. We, we will default to thinking, I am gonna be me. It's you be you, I be me, yeah? Stop apologizing. Stop, stop, stop worrying about what, you know, fitting in. Stop worrying about conforming. We don't want to conform, we want to be non-conformists. Isn't that the whole point of Amsterdam? Certainly the whole point of Brighton where I'm from. And you know, there's a side to that that is fine. I, I, don't, I don't mean to say that non-conformity in itself is an evil, but it's a bit shallow to just think everything conform is bad, everything non-conform is good. We need to be wiser than that. You need to think more carefully, wait a minute, the reality is you are always going to conform to something. You are. Even by virtue of choosing to not conform, you are conforming. Have you noticed? You can't. It's like trying to run away from your shadow. If you say, I'm never going to conform to anybody. No, no, I won't. No, not, not conforming to anybody. By doing that, you're conforming to a view of the world that says you shouldn't conform. So, so you, can't, you can't ultimately escape this. The question isn't whether you conform. The question is who you conform to. The question isn't who do you imitate. It's, sorry, the question isn't do you imitate. The question is who do you imitate? Because you, you will imitate somebody. You just will. There will be things about you that you've learned from others. There'll be things you've drawn out, pictured, even, even subconsciously. Perhaps it's your parents, perhaps it's people in institutions, schools or workplaces, just people that inspire you, people that, that, that glamorize life, people that motivate you, people that you'd like to be like in your business. Maybe it's a, a, a YouTuber. Maybe it's a podcaster. Maybe it's just a, a business guru. That we all have them. Maybe it's a politician, for goodness sake. Probably not, but it could be. <laughs> Maybe it's, I don't know, a rock star, whatever. There'll be some, there'll be some people that you're drawn to emulate. And the writer is saying, basically saying, think about who. Think about who you're imitating. Be wise. Look at the outcome of their life. Who are the people that have brought you closest to Jesus? That's a clue. That's a clue. Remember them. Imitate them. So for some of you, the practical outcome of this sermon today, right, is this. You need to think about why it is that you are more shaped by a YouTuber than you are by your grandmother. Now, for all I know, your grandmother might be evil. And it might be that you're right to follow the YouTuber that you have in mind. But think about why. Think about it. I mean, actually, for some of us, the best wisdom we've ever heard is from someone that we've despised. We've kind of ignored. We thought, well, they're not so cool. They're not so relevant. They're not so engaging. But if you stop and think about the outcome of their life... You stop and think about the way they lived. Stop thinking about the legacy of their life, the, inf the, the blessing they brought to other people. You think, what have I been doing? I've been copying the wrong people. I've spent my whole life imitating people who aren't worth imitating. And that's his point. He's saying, you will conform. That's not going to, that is a given. The question is, who to? Who to? Think wisely about this. Imitate the right people. God has blessed you by giving you people in your life who if you watch their life, you listen to their words, you follow their faith, your life will be better. 
because God loves you enough to provide them to you, provide such people to you. Don't despise that gift. Why would you disdain that gift? That's foolishness. Use the gifts of people. Use them to the top. Use them to the maximum. For some of you, that, that, that will be not just living, breathing people. It will mean dead people. People that you can learn from by their, their example from the past. A great way to obey Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, is to read the stories of great men and women who have led the church in the past who've done heroic things, people who've suffered for Jesus, people who've laid down their lives for Jesus, people who've done miracles for Jesus, people who've traveled the world for Jesus and changed history and abolished slavery and, and changed social conditions and served the poor. Those are some lives worth imitating. And you should know some stories. How about that? If I said to you, name five people who changed the world for Jesus, I wonder if you could quickly give me a list of five. I wonder how many of you would, would, would be like, oh, I can't really think of any. Uh, Jesus? I'm not taking the mickey. I mean, if you're a new Christian, that's a good answer. That's the right answer, <laughs> definitely. But if you've been a Christian for a few years, you know what I think? I think you should know about 10, at least. People that you, you should read their stories and look at little videos, if you like, or whatever, whichever way you best learn. Learn about these people. Why? Because it says here, remember your leaders. Remember them who spoke the word of God. You consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Notice, by the way, it says imitate their faith. It doesn't say imitate their dress sense or their haircut or the way they modulate their voice or their music tastes. Right? You don't have to become a clone, but you do want to imitate their faith, the battles of faith, the way they've trusted Jesus and followed Jesus and completely been faithful to Jesus. That's what you imitate. Let's just finish by looking at the second part. He says also in, the, in verse 17, obey your leaders. This is a crunchy part, isn't it? Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now here he's talking about very much the local church leaders. He's not talking generally now. Okay, these are the people that you can't read books about so much, not yet, not necessarily. They're the people who are in your church who have some leadership authority. Some of you, it will be literally uh, Matt. Some of you will be... Uh, small group leaders. It will be people who lead the teams that you're involved with. And more and more, they'll be identifiable people as the church grows. There'll be people that will need to just say, here they are, these are the people that have some responsibility here in Liberty. How do we respond to them? They guide the church. They guard the church. It's a tough job. Sometimes leaders have to say things that are a bit tough to people because they're doing the wrong thing and they're harming the church and they have to say, no, look, you mustn't do that. And they govern the church. They make decisions. Those are the three G's. Very nice way to remember it. They guide the church. They guard the church. They govern the church. Those are the three G's. When the Bible talks about elders specifically, that's a good way to describe what elders are supposed to do. What do the rest of the church do? It says, submit to them. Submit to them. Submit to them. Why? Well, first of all, it pleases God. It's a good answer, good reason to do anything. Secondly, if they're gifted by God to lead, then it's probably going to do me good to respond to them. If they're gifted, I'll respond. I'll submit, I will follow. Because that will be God's gift to us as a church. Third reason is what he says in verse 17. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be no advantage to you. I love that verse. It's very, it's very common sense. 
it, it, it's, it's, a, it's against what we instinctively do. If a leader annoys me, or frankly, if my wife annoys me, or if you're, you're, you're married and your husband or your wife annoys you, or if your friend annoys you, what we instinctively reach for is to annoy them back. And it's, it's, it's in this, sometimes in this bizarre assumption, if I annoy them back, that will improve the situation. So if my wife somehow disrespects me, I will do something very unloving her because that will certainly make her respect me. Then she'll really respect me because I'm being nasty to her. That will fix it. That will sort her out. It's weird, isn't it? That's what our flesh tells us to do. It's completely bizarre. It's, it doesn't make any sense because the opposite is true. If you want someone to love you or respect you, you, you know what you need to do? <laughs> you need to love and respect them. You'll find it works better even when you don't want to. Oh, I, I wish my leaders in my church lined up with, I, I wish, I, I don't like the way you, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to complain to you and, and reproach you and be difficult as often as possible. That'll fix things. That'll make you the perfect leader. That will really help our relationship and make it very healthy. Mm, no, the Bible says, no, that's not going to work. It's not going to work. You will just make them groan. That's literally what it says. It, they will just, they will groan. They will, leaders groan sometimes. They get exhausted because churches can be a little hard to lead. Um, just so you know, Matt did not say to me, please preach a sermon on this. Please just, please, just tell them to stop groaning. Please, so, so hard at the moment. Please, just tell them. I'm like, no, I want to preach to them about being lovely and nice to each other. No, no, don't do that. No, that's not what happened. Okay, just so you know. This is just important. It's just important in church life. And, and you don't, you, 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 common sense tells us that this is how it works. The way to motivate leaders to lead well is actually to, to respond to them, to let them lead. Let them lead. It's a bit of a trust exercise. Before I finish, I'll just touch on that. But this word submit, even the word submit is negative, isn't it? Especially now. I mean, if you Google the word submit, which I don't suggest you do, it will come up with mostly negative things. It's sometimes like even obscene things. But submit, you know, it basically, if you submit, it means you're a loser, right? I submit, that means I lost. That's what happens in a, in a wrestling match or, or UFC or something. I submit means I'm out, I'm done. Is that what he's saying? Does it mean be a loser? It's because we have a notion of submission entirely negative that doesn't actually fit with what we've learned from Jesus. How did Jesus live? Jesus lived in perfect submission to his Father. Was Jesus a loser? Jesus was the greatest winner there's ever been. So this is, we, we are wrong. We got to fix this. If we instinctively assume to submit means I lose, I cannot submit, I just can't do that, we've got to catch up with Jesus. And you might say to me, well, he just had to submit to his father. That's a lot easier than submitting to a pastor. I disagree. Jesus had to submit to his parents. It literally says in Luke's gospel, he went back to their house and submitted to them. That's years of growing up, submitting to normal parents. And they were normal. All right? Jesus had to grow up in a carpentry shop with a dad who kept telling him how to make 
tables and spatulas. Now, I had woodwork at school and they made me, made me make spatulas. Do you know what a spatula is? It's like, what? I can imagine Jesus being told, now here's how you do it. Careful, watch me. Watch how I make the spatula. You be careful, mister. This is how you do this. Jesus is like, I made the wood. In fact, I made you. Stop telling me how to make spatulas. So Jesus submitted. Isn't that amazing? How did the Son of God submit to fallen, limited parents? How? I'll tell you how. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, right at the end, he submitted himself to him who judges justly. So he thought, God has put me in this family. My father has put me here. He knows what he's doing. So I don't have to panic. I don't have to fight for my rights. I can trust him. That, can, that gives me a peace. And when I don't get it, when it isn't what I would have done, when I think I know better, which he always did, in one sense, he, his attitude was... I submit. I doesn't, I, ultimately, I'm trusting my Father. He will raise me up in due time. Paul says to the Philippians, chapter 2, though he is equal with God, being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be snatched at. So what we do in the West, in Amsterdam, in Brighton, what we do all the time, we love equality. We love autonomy. We love everybody has to have the same. Everybody. Everybody has to have the same. And we snatch at it to make sure that we get ours. I must have. I must have. I must have. Jesus did not consider his equality with God as something to be grabbed. He humbled himself. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him a name which is above every name. Do you want to have a great name? Do you want to be important? Do you want to be up there? Do you want to be one of the leaders? I'll tell you what to do. Humble yourself. Submit. Submit. What's going to happen to me? I don't know. Does that mean that I'll become a great leader? I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know. But I know who's in charge. And so I'd say, trust him. That's my advice. Trust God. Trust God and have an attitude of submission. What does that look like? It looks voluntary. It's out of the heart, it's voluntary. No one's forcing you to submit at all. That's unbiblical, ungodly, evil. No one's forcing, it's voluntary. It's given freely. It's with a good conscience. You don't submit by trampling on your conscience. If a leader asks you to do something that you know is wrong, you say no. It's not against the conscience. The leader appeals to your conscience from scripture. It doesn't force you into things that your conscience isn't happy with. That's a safeguard. And it's open. It's not unchallengeable. You're allowed to say to a leader, uh, why are we doing this? Can you just explain this? Can, can I ask something? Sometimes people say to me in my church, am I allowed to ask? I'm thinking, whoa, weird question. Of course you are. Where'd that come from? Of course you're allowed to ask. So we're not saying you, you throw your brain away, but we're saying the disposition of your heart is, I trust the Lord and he gives leaders. Let's go. Let's follow Let's follow the, the guidance and the call that God's put before us. And, and what kind of leadership? 
if those are some points on what kind of submission, what kind of leadership? It's leadership that's within the body. It's, it's people with gifting. It's not, it's, not, it's not that the leader is therefore separate to the body of the church. No, the leader is part of the body of the church, just using the gift that they have. Everybody's doing that, right? That's what the guys with musicians, everybody, everybody, the PA, everybody's using their gifts. Leadership is just a gift in the church. It's servant-hearted. Jesus insisted on that. Leaders are servants first, and they serve by leading. And, and thirdly, it's, it's for your joy. They don't lord it over you for their own profit. They serve you for your joy. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Serve you for your joy. A leader cares about your joy. That's what leaders are meant to do. Not fight for their own well-being, but for the joy of the people they lead. Fourthly, it's to a high standard that a leader is called. Every leader, especially elders in the church, man, they have to be people who are highly godly. They need to be people who, before the church, you can look at them, and outside the church, they look at them and say, yeah, this is an upright person. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. And then fifthly, they're accountable. Remember it says in verse 17, they give account before God. A leader shouldn't be the sort of person who thinks, I can't, I, I just long to, to, to be in charge of people, to have a badge and a stick and be in control of people. That's terrifying because one day you're going to stand before God and the book of James says that you'll have to be judged more severely if you're a leader or a teacher in the church. So no one should take this lightly. So these are safeguards, aren't they? What kind of submission? Not the ugly kind, not losing in a wrestling match. What kind of leadership? Gentle kind, servant kind. Clear, firm, but from a heart of love, serving the flock that God's given. So let me finish by simply asking you to consider for yourself just where you stand on this. See, I, I guess in, in a gathering of this kind, there'll, there'll be many for whom this is a sticky subject. You think, well, I, I, some of you struggled with this sermon. When you heard me say, I'm going to talk to you about leaders, it's like, oh, I'm not going to enjoy this sermon. And it feels uncomfortable for us. Maybe for some of us, we find ourselves easily criticizing people that are in responsibility. Do you do, you do that? Do you find it easy to criticize in private, in gossip conversations. You know, David, when he tore the cloak of Saul, the king, his friend said, why don't you kill the wicked Saul? Kill the king. That will set you free from him. And David said, no, we're not going to kill him. I'm just going to cut his clothes. After he cut his clothes, his heart smote him, the Bible says. He, was, he felt bad just for that. Just for that. And I think that shows a tender conscience. If we find in our heart that it's very easy, I feel very comfortable criticizing the leaders that God's given me, maybe I need to think, why is, have I got a conscience that's a bit lazy here? Is my heart quite like David's? Maybe we just like talking about the leaders without thinking about them as people. The, the elders, the leaders, is sometimes the language in the church. It's easier to talk about them without naming them. If you name them, I find it makes your conscience a little bit, little bit more active. This is a person with real, real body and soul, real person. And, and maybe we are very quick to be spiritual with leaders. 
in an over-the-top, super-spiritual way, I mean, in a false way. When did God tell you that we should do this in the church? Have you prayed enough about this? Sometimes out of trying to be quite negative, we can dress it up in spiritual language. Be careful of that. Be careful of trying to be too spiritual for the people that God puts in your life. And, and beware of language like this. A lot of people in the church are saying this at the moment. You ever heard that language? You ever said that? I've said it, I think. A lot, of, a lot of people, I've heard a lot of people saying this. In my experience, what that nearly always means is two. Two people are saying that. You're almost scientifically proven. Two people are saying that. You and someone else. Two people. A lot of people. I heard a preacher say, say this years ago. My, my mum was in the congregation, and she thought it was a really good sermon. And the preacher said, uh, just this very point I'm making, a lot, a lot of people means two. And she, she, she had a conversation with someone who thought it was a really good sermon, went up to him afterwards and said, a lot of people are saying what a good sermon that was. <laughs> and he said, how many? She said, oh, two. <laughs> so it kind of proves the point. And then finally, when you pray for your leader, leaders, when you pray for those leading, do you pray for them with an agenda? Lord, I just pray that you would help my leader to get the right doctrine on this issue. Amen. Or, or do you pray like the Bible calls you to pray for them? Pray for them as, as a brother in Christ. Pray for them as, as someone who you care about, you love them, you want the best, and pray for them to be bold and clear and strong in the, in the purposes of God. Let's just start to pray. I'm going to lead us into communion as a way of closing. I appreciate we've used a lot of time today, so thank you for giving so much attention. But I, I want to help us to land this with communion and I'll just lead us into that. Perhaps the musicians could come and join me. Because this in the end is an issue of, of our heart connection with Jesus. It really is. It might sound strange, but it really is about how we trust Jesus. See, trusting Jesus means that I'm set free from the need to be in charge of everything. If I really trust Jesus, I, I find that it liberates me from having to have everything explained so that I'm perfectly always satisfied with every decision fitting my preferences. I find that. I find that people that have responsibility for leading things that are over me when I'm, I'm following other people, I, I found that in church life, the group of churches that we're part of. Sometimes I'm thinking, Jesus, thank you so much that you are enough for me. And times when I just, I just wish I was more included in the decision or at the table, more involved, more powerful, more respected, getting more honor. Where's that come from, that longing for honor? You know what? Maybe it's not all wrong. Jesus wants to honor you. But come to him for it. Come to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I want to trust that you're enough for me. I can trust you. I'll be freer and more honored as I just trust you and serve you and humble myself before you. And for some, it's, it's a problem for you to hear about leadership just because of being hurt. 
you've been hurt before in church, you've been in a church where you got taken advantage of or it felt like that, it felt very much like you did not get treated well by a leader or by some leaders. So it's a very painful thing. And you're thinking, I know what the Bible says. I know it's true. I, I, I know, I can see the verses. I see what you're saying, preacher. But it is really hard for me. And you know what? I, I get that. I do get that. But as you come to the table today to take bread and wine, can I ask you to keep your heart soft and say, Jesus, I don't want this hurt to shape the rest of my life. I want to leave it behind today. I don't want this to identify me. I want my life to be about Jesus, not about past hurts. And I want to trust you trust the good things that you have for me in, in the church of Jesus, in, in the church that you put me in. I want to trust you. Help me. I don't want to miss the gift that you give to me of being part of a church where I can follow and serve. So I want to put those things behind me in the name of Jesus. I want to forgive. I want to I pray for people. Even if I never meet them again, I want to pray for them. Maybe some of you do need to meet people and just do business, but just in your heart, let it go. Let it go. Let it go. And, and let's, let's draw near to Jesus who forgives and cleanses, who, who is trustworthy. And he models this. He, he shows us how to let go of our own rights, let go of our own agenda, our own preferences trusting the Father submitting to those that he puts us around so that we can grow and grow be raised up in due time raised up in due time Father we thank you for your son thank you for his life, his death, his resurrection help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to live that out together in Jesus name